Syria has turned the tide. Rebel forces have now retaken all the territory they had lost to Gaddafi's troops as Allied airstrikes have grounded the dictator's planes and paved the way towards Tripoli. But that may have been the easy part. another loathed Middle Eastern tyrant, a man who was also for decades a sponsor of international terror, Muammar Gaddafi. Seven months ago, the United States threw its support behind rebel forces in Libya. Today, those fighters finally got their man. When the dust from the first Libyan civil war settled, Controversial leader Muammar Gaddafi was assassinated and the nation was left in flux. The years that followed were a decade of conflict, proxy wars, smuggling, crisis and displacement. But in October 2020, a ceasefire promised stability and a new era for Libya. To facilitate this transition to peace, a series of meetings referred to as the Libyan Political Dialogue Forum or LPDF, were held in late 2020. These intra-Libyan meetings resulted in a victory of a list of political leadership headed by Abdul Hamid al-Dabaib. But how will Dabaib administer law and order in a transitional government? And what will be the implications of Libya's political reorganization on politics, militias and organized crime? You're listening to Africa and the Global Illicit Economy with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. This week, we're in North Africa. I'm your host, Lindim Tongana. Libya's Prime Minister-designate Abdel Hamid Debiba on Monday urged MPs to take responsibility by placing confidence in his government and leading it to elections at the end of December. Abdelhamid Debiba, who arrived at the Gadabia airbase near the city of Sirt, ahead of a vote on the new interim unity government, addressed the House of Representatives, who were gathered for a crucial session. Who is Abdul Hamid al-Dubaib, Libya's transitional prime minister? As we're sure you've come to learn on this podcast, the past informs the future and al Dabaib's wealth and meteoric rise is being called into question. Hamid Dabaiba is mainly known through his cousin and brother-in-law, whose name is Ali, Ali Dabaiba. Ali Dabaiba was basically someone who became very, very wealthy during the 90s and more importantly during the 2000s. He made a lot of money through ways that are not really documented, that are probably illicit through kickbacks and and all kinds of money schemes that leached off a wild construction streak on the part of Muammar Gaddafi. Jalal Hashoui is a senior fellow at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. In December 2003, there was this peace deal between Libya on the one hand and Britain 
and the United States on the other, which basically saw the removal of sanctions associated with the Lockerbie terror attack of December 1988. And, and that corresponded to a period of oil prices that kept going higher and higher. You look at the trend during the 2000s. So everything basically was lined up. And the person of trust that Muammar Gaddafi used to put together those construction projects, mainly through Chinese companies and Turkish companies, and the Turkish angle is very important here. Ali Dabeba was able to extract billions, really, most likely. And he worked very closely with his cousin, Abdel Hamid. We have every reason to believe that he's most probably clever, clever and street smart and experienced as a business person. He's from the city of Misrata, but the way he was able to seduce so many people over the last several weeks is not by insisting on the revolutionary aspect of his past or his known association with Islamist actors, hardline revolutionaries from Misrata and elsewhere. Abdul Hamid al-Dabaib is a man of money, but it's not quite clear how that money was made. Accusations of corruption have been leveled against Dabaib in a UN report suggesting that he bribed his way to power. According to Jalal, it must be proven that Dubaib is guilty for the report to make a difference. They have to prove that no other candidate to the Geneva process did anything similar to what he did. You can see that the burden of proof is, is really very difficult to meet. It's easy when you sit in London or Switzerland or Denmark to be shocked at these allegations, including even Libyan expatriates. But... If you pay attention to what happened in CERT, you had 132 members of parliament very busy negotiating with this person who's supposed to be discredited by those allegations. Obviously, he's not discredited. People are rushing to strike deals with him. So obviously, if the members of parliament that represent the people of Libya are not shocked, who's going to have to be shocked? Shalal, switching over to policy, what do you think al key priorities will be as the interim prime minister. He will have to make choices because Libya is very wealthy, but its wealth is not unlimited. It's a finite amount of resources. So at some stage, he will have to disappoint even more people as he moves into office and begins governing. What we have seen over the last several days and weeks cannot be sustained. Showing himself to be quite flexible and friendly, this cannot continue forever. I mean, I expect a lot of disappointments and even a backlash in his first weeks in power. On March 10th, Libyan legislators approved the country's first unified government in years. Tell us about the makeup of this cabinet, which groups have been included and which groups have been excluded. What we have seen is him really going out of the way to please Haftar, the military commander that dominates the eastern part of Libya, and also in the same province, making huge efforts to please another figure who's not the military figure, but also quite important from a tribal and, and even political angle, Aguila Salah, who is the um, president of the House of Representatives, also a figure in the east. Going into his victory on February 5th, because he had to be elected through the uh, UN process in Geneva, he also made a lot of efforts pleasing other anti-Islamist actors in the western part of, of Libya. So you see he's, he's basically Nixon going to China. He's basically, you know, making great efforts to comfort his suspected enemies. He took a deputy prime minister that will probably be dedicated to representing the East. 
almost like a shadow prime minister that will actually defend the interests of the East. There's a Qaddafist figure as the economy minister. There is a Fazazna figure from the South as the uh, new minister of finance, probably very conservative, probably Qaddafi compatible. It's a, basically almost like he's harking back to his old self, the Qaddafi version of the Beba, not the revolutionary version of the Beba. He's someone who has been active in across all regions of Libya for the last three decades. So he has many facets. And Jalal, what do you make of Dubaiba's decision to maintain control of the defense ministry? I would say that he made sure that the defense ministry was going to remain empty. He's most likely going to cultivate a deputy defense minister as a figure that will actually concentrate on the western part of Libya, which means effectively accommodate the continued Turkish military mission in Tripolitania. That's what it means. It means a figure that doesn't look at all at the east and maintain silence vis-a-vis a Turkey that is absolutely determined to stay. And the same thing in the East, probably a chief of staff or a deputy defense minister that will not bother Marshal Haftar, who believes he has his own Libyan national army, quote unquote. Also, never speak about the Russian mercenaries, never speak about the Sudanese mercenaries, never speak about the Syrian mercenaries on the side of Haftar. I I forgot also to mention the Syrian mercenaries. There's probably like 3,000 remaining in the Tripoli region. The reason we have an empty seat as a defense minister is to observe this law of silence and accommodation. In light of previous business interests, what kind of relationship is he likely to forge with countries like Russia and Turkey? Turkey and Russia have very similar interests at this juncture. Both nations, both Eurasian powers are broke. Those are countries that never give money, never inject capital. In fact, they're usually in the business of trying to extract capital. And that's very much their intention in Libya. They have every intention to get paid through what? Big ticket contracts in the domains of arms sales. In the case of Russia, it wants to sell also more grain, construction projects, and also, of course, hydrocarbons. Russia, for instance, is interested in buying hydrocarbons from Libya, which is a little bit paradoxical on the part of one of the top producers, one of the top exporters in the world. So you see that the economy and business in general dominates the preoccupations of Turkey and Russia. Egypt would love to see also a resumption of construction because it would love to see the number of Egyptian workers on Libyan soil to reach once again the high level that used to be the case before 2011. There used to be as many as one million Egyptian workers in Libya. And what about the Emirates? The Emirates is one of the top three interferers when you look at the military activity, the political manipulation. Uh, it's very active. It's not as powerful as Turkey or Russia, but no analysis should ignore the Emirates because that country is still to this day very active and it has been very, very consequential over the last several years. And it's not looking for money. See, that's what makes it peculiar vis-a-vis the other ones. It's it has plenty of money, it's not looking for oil, it's not looking to get paid. It really cares about the ideological makeup of whatever dominates Tripoli. Lastly, Jalal, do you think that Debaiba will maintain his political ambitions once this transition period is over? It's possible to demonstrate that he has every intention to stay somewhere between 24 and 30 months. 
that's what you can get from his remarks, from his body language, from the comments that he has been making behind closed doors. I wouldn't describe him as someone who's genuinely committed to considering this priority. I'm talking about the elections this year. Uh, so for me, the probability of it happening is, is pretty much zero. And even the rest of the political elites in Libya, they, they don't seem dominated by this obsession of, of actually making the elections happen this year. So I don't see a lot of desire, a lot of political desire. I think that the Beba would is going into office with the intention of staying longer. Probably a good two years in his mind would be a, a satisfactory amount of time. And knowing the recent past in Libya, it's probably going to translate to an even greater amount of time. That was Jalal Hashoui, a senior fellow at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. With the government of national unity facing the realities of a transitional government, human smuggling may not be at the top of the agenda. But high numbers of departures since February hint at a dangerous trend. Until now, there has been a huge increase in the number of boat departures of migrants taking to the seas to get to Italy or Malta to the other side. And actually recorded, we have 6,400 people, which is the highest since the summer of 2018. We've also had 3,500 returns of migrants by the Libyan Coast Guard and other coastal officials. And also to prove that the Mediterranean continues to be the most deadliest route, over 80 have been confirmed dead or missing thus far. Rebecca Murray is a senior analyst with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Rebecca, what is the current situation with Libya's detention centers? There was a huge war going on around Tripoli for the first half of the year. And of course, COVID struck as well in March in Libya, rendering the detention centers basically closed down with migrants unable to get food to eat, caterers unwilling to deliver food, a lack of access from NGOs, etc. So it's pretty dire. Numbers definitely decreased in detention. However, what we've seen is very notorious detention centers have closed, for instance, one called Suka Hamis in the Homs area that many testimonies were taken of sexual abuse as well as forced labor, etc. there, as well as another one high in the mountains called the Zintan DC that's just emptied out. However, you are getting an expansion now um, and very crowded detention centers, for instance, in Tripoli. So just to give you an example, a month ago, we had about 1,100 people being held in detention centers in northwest Libya, which actually isn't much considering how many people are there passing through or use the country to work as migrants. However, just in one month, we now have 3,600 migrants, and this is people coming from the sea, disembarked by the Libyan Coast Guard, or people apprehended on the streets. There's lots of roundups going on now. Given the increased number of roundups and migrants held at detention centers, what are the conditions there? In one uh, detention center called Abu Salim, 
basically the detainees rose up because their food, they were being fed twice a day, had really deteriorated to hardly anything. And they started rising up. The guards then stood up and basically started shooting inside the cells, first above people's heads. And then according to eyewitness testimonies, migrants who were inside the detention center said that then they started aiming at people. That resulted in the immediate death one man who got shot in the um, chest and another person who's in very critical condition now in the hospital with a gunshot to his head. There have been reports that the Department for Combating Illegal Immigration, or the DCIM, has been shifting detention centers away from the coast and more inland. Can you explain what they're trying to achieve and what the impact of this might be? The idea is to take the detention centers, especially there have been some very notorious ones along the coast, and to move them inland. If you look at the big picture, this is kind of what Gaddafi did, the Gaddafi model back in the day. And that is to apprehend migrants before they get to the coast. And there have also been a department established for desert patrols under DCIM as well. So how that could look like is desert patrols would pick up migrants who who without papers and they would take them to a nearby facility, usually a DCIM facility that would process people in a number of days and then take them to either a longer term facility or arrange if they want to be repatriated home. There's that aspect too. However, How we're seeing this taking place is a little bit more messier. How do you think that the DCIM might change under Libya's new regime? With the new power alliances that are forming, we're actually thinking that perhaps there may be more increased opportunities for criminality, Mm. meaning that the current head of DCIM, who is the architect for this new plan, is putting detention centers in rural areas while trying to close others down in a very controlled, very heavy handed way. In a way, you know, he's coordinating all the humanitarian organizations, doing everything very by the book. There are detention centers, though, that he's ordered closed that have powers behind them because every detention center is in an area that has kind of an influential person behind it. For instance, let's take the coastal town of Zawiya, which is quite notorious in the smuggling trade. There are two detention centers there, one that closed, it was very notorious, called Al Nasser. We've heard many stories over the years from Al Nasser and the brutality there. And also Abu Isa. These are pretty much run under the same power. Right now, that power has been curbed from this recent election. The family that has the power there feels empowered now. What we could see is, first of all, a switch up of the Ministry of Interior on a bigger scale, but that all trickles down. And what we could see is a rise of these powers that control certain detention centers be able to operate much more freely, because at the end, what we're seeing is it's a booming political economy. There's a lot of business opportunities to be made from the migration trade. That was Rebecca Murray, a senior analyst with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Dubaiba and the GNU's victory has implications for crime governance. His opponent, Fatih Bashaga, had promised to be tough on crime. 
The interim prime minister's rise to power was reportedly celebrated by mafia-type armed groups as a major win. The vote dynamics within the Libyan political dialogue forum itself, the same dynamics that kind of influence people to vote against the other leading list that was expected to win, that was led by Fatih Bashara, the then interior minister, and Aguila Saleh, the speaker of the House of Representatives. The same dynamics that led people to oppose that list politically within the Libyan Political Dialogue Forum are similar to the dynamics that led armed groups to prefer really any other list that would have won. Ahmad Adin Badi is a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. A lot of them expect to be accommodated by Dbeiba, and a lot of them will most probably be accommodated by Dbeiba. In fact, the very arrival of Dbeiba into Tripoli a few weeks ago was coordinated directly with armed groups from Tripoli. So there's a clear expectation there or a degree of kind of proximity there that already exists. Uh, So we'll have to see whether that will persist or not. But in any case, the joy that you see in amongst armed groups is symptomatic of their contempt. Ahmad, what is this contempt based on? Is Dubaiba likely to preserve or build on some of what you started to see Bashaga do in relation to these armed groups? There were several factors that influenced armed groups to oppose Fatih Bashara, whether they be in the western region or the eastern region. In the Western region, there are groups that are inherently criminal that oppose Bashara due to his anti-corruption, anti-criminality rhetoric. So there's partly that. Then there's also a communal dimension to it in that he is Masratan. Therefore, a lot of the groups also that are not Masratan are opposed to him for that very reason. Then the fact that he allied with Aguila Saleh, which many associate with Khalifa Haftar, meant that he looked like he was ready to do anything to get in power, which actually affected his very own power base, even within the city which he hails from. Is it likely then that a lot of these groups will maintain the roles they've played in the past where they've acted as state proxies and addressed some criminal activities? Yes, definitely. But now you have different dynamics to those that existed in 2016 when the government of national court arrived to Libya back then, because then the armed groups could really almost completely predate over state revenue, irrespective of what they were doing on the security front. If they managed to secure territorial control in a particular area in Tripoli, they had leverage. Now it's slightly different in that you have a lot of foreign powers present, some of which are conducting train and equip programs. So some of the groups will not only have to instrumentalize the links they have to political actors, they'll actually also have to perform security-based duties to an extent. And uh, that doesn't mean that they're invested in security as such, but it's almost as if the byproduct of actually doing that will be to get access to patronage networks via domestic or international powers. The other dynamic I would say that is also important is overall the economic crunch that Libya is going through. We're no longer in 2016 when we had an abundance of funding available. So they also have to account for that in that they can get access to letters of credit. A lot of these illicit kind of revenue mechanisms that were available to them are now a bit more scrutinized, so they have to find alternative ways of navigating this landscape. 
seeing as this moment in history is supposed to be a new dawn for Libya, do you think that armed groups can be incentivized to abandon otherwise lucrative illicit activities? If armed groups have proven to be adept at anything, it's actually public relations and branding in the past 10 years, to be honest. They've managed to do that quite well. You can even see the new institutionalized armed groups that are referred to now actually having almost advertisements about how they're now invested in building a state building, so to speak, in the country. Uh, an armed group actually had that on a board in the middle of Tripoli. So now that there's a reset legitimacy-wise with this new government, a lot of people are hoping for something. Unfortunately, if you look at things more a bit more objectively and on a continuum from the past 10 years, the situation is not great. All of the factors that kind of led to the level of hybridity, security, pluralism, and all the affiliated problems on the security side of things still exist. And some factors are even worse, at least at the economic level, at the level of foreign interference, proliferation of weapons, a level of fragmentation, social polarization, all these factors that I mentioned are now way worse than they were before. And it's very difficult for a government that is supposed to only be here for nine months to actually even significantly affect any of these. Are there any trends that you foresee in Libya's illicit crime networks under this transitional government? Yeah, there are definitely several things I'm researching at the moment or that I plan to research. So on the one hand, institutionally speaking, I will be looking at the restructuring of certain security institutions, so to speak, that are outputs of the ceasefire. So for instance, you have this idea of reforming the Petroleum Facilities Guard, Gaddafi-era institution that is mandated to protect oil facilities, and that has been significantly fragmented, hollowed out, but at the same time overstaffed by revolutionaries post-2011. So it's an interesting group to look at if there is uh, investment in actually reforming it. From a foreign dynamics perspective, I don't expect that these Syrians and Russians uh, will be leaving anytime soon. At least it doesn't, there's no tangible sign of that. But there are dynamics at the level of Sudanese and Chadian mercenaries that are worth looking at, particularly given the dynamics in Sudan itself. That was Imad Badi, a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Libya is in a period of transition. For the first time in eight years, a unified executive authority has been selected and is set to take power. Interim Prime Minister Abdul Hamid al-Dabaib has selected his cabinet of 33 ministers and two deputies. Parliament has until March 24th to confirm the new government, which would replace two rival administrations, one in the East and one in the West each backed by an array of militias and foreign governments. If Dubaib and the Government of National Unity take power, they face a new set of challenges. Dubaib's alliances and the source of his wealth is being called into question. New vacuums of power may open the door for more criminality in the DCIM, and ever-adept armed groups are seeing new opportunities to gain from the GNU's rise. That's all for this episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy. A special thank to our guests, Jalal Hashoui, Rebecca Murray, and Ahmad Badi. If you want to learn more about today's episode, visit globalinitiative.net 
and read the Monitoring the Political Economy of Human Smuggling in Libya and the Sahel. While you're there, have a listen to some of our other podcasts, including our last episode, Meth and Guns in South Africa, and Crime at Nairobi's Dandora Dumpsite. Please take the time to leave a review, subscribe, and share the podcast on social media. It helps us get noticed and improve the show. When you hear from us again next week, we'll be in East Africa and Southern Africa discussing meth in South Africa and ivory in Tanzania. This episode was produced by Alexandra Sahai-Williams. I'm your host, Lindim Tongana. Tongana.